0: Welcome to the Maitrepa College podcast. Maitrepa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangsi Rinpoche in 2005 in Portland, Oregon. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity, as well as Classical Tibetan Language Studies. Founded upon the three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitrepa College curriculum combines Western academic contemplative learning and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West. As scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators and more, we invite you to join us to make your practice your life. In this week's episode, Venerable Lundab Damcha introduces Tibetan Buddhist philosophy during the first week of fall courses at Maitrepa College.
1: So when we speak about philosophy, we're not talking about a series of abstract principles or theories to be debated. We're very specifically speaking about how we see things, our view of the world, or a vision for what our place in the world could be. And when we're talking about how we see things or view of the world, in a Buddhist context, the understanding that, that Buddha was transmitting to us is that how we see things affects profoundly how we relate to the things that we see and how we position self and the other that's being seen, our conduct, our emotional responses, you know, our way of being in the world. And so when we're thinking about philosophy, in a Buddhist context, and this is this is a, an understanding of philosophy that Maitripa, in general, is designed to uphold, is we're looking at a vision of the world that affects how we act and how we relate to others. So, as I'm sure you know, because you're here, you know, taking this class in you know, in this new generation of Maitripa's cohort, the idea is that we take philosophy and we really profoundly reflect on what that vision means for us through meditation, and that will manifest itself in how we are acting in the world. And the way of articulating that in a Buddhist context is service. So you have the three elements to what it means to be Studying Buddhist philosophy, when you're studying Buddhist philosophy, it should manifest in changes in you. Because how you see things, when you're really seeing them, changes how you relate to them and therefore how you treat them and how you act in the world. So when we start to look at the texts and the practices that revolve around what we because we're working from a Western context, are calling Buddhist philosophy, one of the things that we start seeing is that there's a tremendous amount of things that don't look like philosophy. You know, you start talking about you know, terms that it's a little bit hard to understand how does that become philosophy. And. When we're looking at the Tibetan presentation of philosophy in the two forms or two systems that this particular semester is designed to introduce you to, one is the system of tenets. Okay, so that's an important category that you will definitely understand exactly what it's talking about. And what's called Lam Rim. Lam means path. Rim means sequence or step by step sequential and both of these are particularly tibetan contributions to the presentation of buddhist thought okay there was no lamrim in india it was create the term was coined and the first lamrim text was created by an indian teacher responding to the particular needs of tibetans and we'll talk about those particular needs in a second the tenet system similarly is a way of organizing all of the different theoretical systems that arrived in Tibet at a certain historical point that looked massively contra- internally contradictory you know, too much diversity too 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 much definitely too much and how does it all fit together so If we take a step back and and just imagine ourselves in that, in the historic point of time when Buddhism is arriving in Tibet. At the moment when Buddhist teachings started reaching Tibet, Tibet was a very sophisticated culture in certain senses. It had a very large empire. The empire stretched from Central Asia all across the very large geographical span that is the Tibetan Plateau into territory that is absolutely now part of China. And the Tibetan Empire at a certain point invaded what was then the the capital of the Chinese Empire. It was a massive empire with all of the administrative sophistication that you need to administer a large geographical span in the age before communications technology. So in that sense, quite sophisticated. No language, no, sorry, yes, language, no script, no literature, no written language. Okay. So therefore no literature. Oral epic poetry, yes, orally transmitted. It was an oral culture, but not a literary written culture. There starts becoming, there there initiates more and more intense, Intellectual contact with Indian sources and also with Chinese sources because Buddhism is already in China at that point but primarily at the initial contacts were taking place through Sanskrit and Tibetan Empire meets this extremely sophisticated intellectual body of thought that was coming from India and they wanted to know more so they have a script that's developed specifically in order to engage with the texts that were at that point being transmitted in Sanskrit, which were Buddhist texts. And so they literally start their written language. They, They send someone to make a script that's based on Sanskrit principles of script. They make a grammar, which if you study Tibetan in a traditional setting, it will drive you absolutely crazy. Because Sanskrit grammars, so in, in an Indian context, in the Sanskrit world, grammar is a high philosophy. Grammar is talking about philosophy of language, and language reflects how the world is structured. So very high level thinking about what a grammar is. But also, the Sanskrit language is part of the Indo-European family. They have a case system, you know, it's an inflective they have conjugations, they have feminine and masculine. They have all the different tenses that anyone that studied Latin or Greek has been made crazy by. That's all there in Sanskrit. Tibetan is not that kind of a language. It's a particle-based language. It's an agglutinative language. language. You, you put a syllable at the end of a word to mark where it is in the sentence. Sanskrit modifies all the words and has a case system. Okay, so you're not, this is not a class on that. But it is to say that the grammars were basically trying to use Sanskrit categories to look at the Tibetan language, which makes it very difficult because that's not actually how the Tibetan language is operating. Um, but that's just, it's not to make you afraid because you will be studying Tibetan from those of you who do, from people who are, you know, trained in transmitting language through. You know, a different way of understanding it, but the point is that the, the way of the, the incredible appreciation for these analytical tools and wanting to bring all of this knowledge from India into the Tibetan linguistic world, all of that is going on, and then what happens is they're confronting the entire intellectual corpus of Buddhism all at once. So Buddha had the historical Buddha Buddha Shakyamuni had a very long life which means he taught a lot from the time of his enlightenment he was teaching for decades and he was teaching all the time so the corpus is immense it's hundreds of volumes it's not you know one you know one book it's hundreds of volumes and The Buddha was first and foremost not a philosopher. He was first and foremost a teacher. And what a teacher does is looks at the audience and engages with them where they are. And the Buddha was an enormously inclusive teacher. He taught every audience and every person and every being that came in front of him. He was teaching prostitutes. He was teaching farmers. He was teaching lawyers. He was teaching philosophers. He was teaching kings. He was teaching queens. He was teaching everyone. And everyone that he taught was receiving a teaching at the level that they were at. The result of that is a, a dazzling diversity of presentations. And if you receive all of that it, like on a flat level, like this is everything, go make sense of it, like how right it's a, it's an absolutely overwhelming task imagine that we at this point had never been exposed to world knowledge outside this the state of oregon let's say we've all lived here and scotland doesn't exist and we're you know we've never contacted it we've all been here and suddenly we are given access to the an entire two millennia of intellectual understanding, we're not stupid, but we've never been exposed to this before, and we and we 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 just feel that there's something really compelling and really fascinating, and, and we're interested. We want to know it. So this is essentially where the Tibet the Time- Tibetan encounter with Indian understanding starts. Okay, in this very particular set of historic conditions. So one of the tasks that was gi- given a lot of attention was like, where do we place all of this? What do we do with all of this? So there are philosophical presentations that we would call philosophical in which the Buddha is, saying, is, is telling his audience you know, that you don't have a, a, a fixed essence. You are not a thing, you don't have a fixed essence. You have no self. Of course, everything around you has a self. Of course, this 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 has not have not a self in the way we're understanding. It has an essence. It it has a substantial, inherent identity or nature. But you don't. And then he's telling other groups of people nothing has an inherent nature. Nothing, everything is relative. Mm. And. These are two extremely coherent systems that you can train in, that you can think about, that you can work with, and they're obviously not compatible. (laughs) And the Buddha said them both. What do you do with that? What do you do with that diversity? So one of the geniuses of the Tibetan, you know, way of thinking and working with the material was to trust that they do work together. They all came from the same being. We don't think he was, you know, schizophrenic. We think that it makes, a, it has a certain logic. Where do we place it? You know, and so they really, with from a very kind of very careful and rigorous study, they identified, okay, if you start here, it will take you to a point where you start to question something and you're ready to take a leap and you can go into something that challenges you even more deeply, right? And so the, the organization of these different philosophical schools that did exist in India into a system where you can start here, you can study it really well, and it'll start challenging you, and it will be pushing you outside of your comfort zone until you get to a point where you're questioning things, you're co- you're willing to question things, and then suddenly you need... You know, or you're ready to be pushed to another level of questioning, that's the tenant system. Okay? And a similar sort of process takes place, not with the philosophical views, because the tenant system is primarily concerned with ontology, with theories of being. What exists? What has a nature? What doesn't have a nature? Is there, you know, do I have an existence completely apart from everything else around me, or am I, or do I have to understand myself as interconnected, interdependent? So that's basically ontology, right, like how things exist. Then you have all of the practices. So the Lamrim takes place, the Lamrim is created when Atisha, who is an Indian pundit, is invited, an uh, Indian adept scholar, um highly respected teacher in india is invited and convinced and persuaded to come to tibet comes to tibet in the middle of the 11th century after the tibetan empire has fallen apart when there has been a, a period of intense civic unrest a lot of the, the when you have a large central government or central authority that goes away There can be a lot of chaos. You had a lot of local powers, clan-based structures or feudal lords in different valleys or just, you know, a certain level of chaos or anarchy that came about. It became very dangerous to travel even from just one valley to the next because the power was so localized and, and... incompatible with the way, of, with the power in the next valley. So you have this very difficult period for the transmission of the Dharma when, when a son of the royal family who had escaped to the, the extreme west of Tibet and had founded a local kingdom, that, kingdom there called Guge, he invites Atisha and asks him, like, it's chaotic here. Like, we're a mess. We need help. Atisha comes and he sees, yes, <laughs> quite so. There's, you know, the understanding has not flowed very well. Um, partly because a teacher couldn't travel easily from one place to the next. Um, and for lots of other reasons, um, including the loss of the support of the empire at that time. Atisha comes. And he sees that people are at all sorts of different levels. They've gotten a little bit like maybe what happens now in Dharma centers. Whatever teacher turns up, whatever topic they're teaching, that's what you get teachings on. So you get a little bit of this and you get a little bit of that and then you get a little bit of the other thing and then again you get what you should have gotten before you got that other thing. You get that a little later and you're sort of like that. So you can imagine a similar sort of environment in Tibet at that time. Very haphazard. Who's passing through and what they're giving. No one is supervising a training program for you. You're just grabbing what you can get while it you know before it passes. So Atisha comes and he really does a similar sort of process to what's happened with tenant systems in saying, okay, you know, where does all of where do all these practices fit in? You know, so practices like reflecting on death and impermanence, you know, or thinking about ethics, or developing compassion. You know, what comes first? How does it all fit together? What are, what are, what, what are these, you know, we have got all these gears, you don't even know it's actually a clock. You didn't even know that because you, you're just picking up the gear pieces and it's great, but you don't know quite what to do with it. So, Atisha. Maps out, and I won't I won't get into the details because that's sort of what's coming. Atisha maps out: okay, where are we going? Where are we going with this path? You like you you're inspired by something. Maybe a Buddhist teacher that you met inspired you. Maybe one practice that you did inspired you. Maybe a community inspired you. Maybe a quote inspired you, but w- w- what is actually the product that you're trying to create in yourself? You know, you're the product, basically. What are, you, what are you trying to become? Where are you going with all of this? So what the Lam Rim does, this gradual path, is to articulate clearly where we're going and to explain exactly how you get there. What are the, what are the steps? Building on what aptitude or insight, or ability, or personal quality, do we pass to the next step to get closer and closer to the result that we want. And so the lamrim passes through steps. You work on this. When that, when that feels pretty solid, that forms a good base to then work on that. And when you have that pretty solid, you pass to the next. Okay. When you have that set done, you're ready to take a quantum leap into the next level, basically. And that works in this sequential way. So why is it so important for you to spend a kind of, do this like whirlwind tour of Europe in you know, 27 countries in, you know, in four, 15 weeks? Because you are going to be guiding yourselves. Yes, they're teachers, but essentially we are the ones who have to work with our own minds. We have a guide, but we also have to be our own guide, finally. And we need to understand what we're doing. So that's absolutely key. Partly because it's a very long path and we'll get discouraged and we'll think, I've been doing this for a long time, I don't see results, why do I have to keep doing it, I'm really tired understanding why we're doing what we're doing keeps us going. And also, we are, we are the ones who are reconstructing ourselves, so we need to understand how those pieces fit together. And so the lamrim is basically this presentation that you're going to get in one semester so that, first of all, you can situate yourself a little bit. Now, we all want to consider ourselves to be on the third level. Where actually are we? Right? or maybe we want to situate ourselves on the first level and maybe actually we're not maybe we're on the second. So we want to as we're going along to really identify you know where happened, where do we have work to do where do we have certain work done what are the strengths how could we build on the strengths that we have where do we need to put in effort so that we ourselves can start taking charge of the process of reconstructing ourselves and we know why, and we know where we're going with it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. If you would like to learn more about Maitripa College, please visit our website at maitripa.org, M-A-I-T-R-I-P-A dot O-R-G. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Piñeiro, Kate McDonald, Andrew Hughes, And me, your host, Tiffany Blumenthal.